Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday, y'all. And a big football weekend in store tomorrow. We got uh, certainly with respect to Ole Miss and Mississippi State, they'll have to rebound from some defeats last weekend, and uh, big-time SEC games in the Magnolia State tomorrow, starting off at 5 p.m. in the Vaught, the Traveling Tigers <laughs> coming up from Baton Rouge, LSU, facing the Ole Miss Rebels, and then it's Alabama <laughs> visiting Starkville. That's like 8 o'clock, isn't it? I want to say so. Yeah, Starts I at eight o'clock. The schedule, man, makes it tough to uh, hit church with an eight o'clock <laughs> game, doesn't it? And then you got Texas State going to the Rock in Hasbro. That's right, uh, big one down there as well. So uh, it should be an entertaining weekend. But we're we're in week four, right? So we're right in the throes of it, and we have uh, the clock is, it is four or five. Heck, I can't remember. Maybe I think it's, it's five. five. You're right, five. That's right. I had to think about it for a second. Um, I did, too. You know, unfortunately, until you get into the conference play, some of those games are sort of fuzzy. <laughs> I forgot we went down to Tulane. Um, Ole Miss did. State, of course, was at South Carolina. There's something about playing in South Carolina. when you I watched the game, of course, and you hear that the rooster crow sound in the stadium. That dang rooster's confused about the time of day, is it not? I mean, Just a wee bit. It's 10 o'clock at night, and it's crowing. They don't do that in real life. Real roosters don't, well, do they? Uh, the old wives' tale says if you hear a rooster crow after dark, it's a bad omen. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe it's at midnight. <laughs> oh, man. I got sick of hearing that thing. That's about as annoying as the Vanderbilt whistler in baseball. <laughs> oh, wow. Diane Feinstein, at age 90, has passed away. If you haven't heard that, folks, she being the senior senator from the Golden State of California. Now all eyes focused on Governor Gavin Newsom. Who shall he appoint 
to replace the uh, senator. How long has she been there? Since 92. Good grief. Wow. 31 years. But you know, Mississippi's own Benny Thompson, I believe he's been there since 93, if I'm not mistaken. Check that. Check me out on that. Isn't that right? 93. He's been in the U.S. House for a while. No doubt. Uh, so. Yep. Assumed that, office April 13th, 1993. 93. So he's been there 30 years. She. What'd you say? 92 for her, right? So 31 years. Now, look, the, the, the loss of any human life at any age is always tragic, no doubt. But here's something to think about. Now, she died in office. You can't say that she died unexpectedly. She's 90. I wouldn't exactly say that's unexpectedly. In her, and she's been in poor health for a while. Does that not say something about just who's running our government, though? And, and again, she we're all getting older. We can't stop that. I get it. But when you're 90, now, when did she run for re-election last? How, when's her, her term up? Was she up for re-election in 24? Meaning she's been in office five years since her last election as a senator? point I'm making is, if that's the case, the, the California re-elected her, at a, at a minimum, minimum they re-elected her at the age of 84, right? She would have been that age or older in the last cycle. That's crazy, honestly. It's just crazy. So, it, again, I think what it says is, and, and I'm honestly, I'm not... Don't put me down for, for uh, imposing some sort of age limits on serving, but I am for cognitive testing. I think that's perfectly rational and logical. Well, if we lived in a sane world, the parties wouldn't keep allowing these people to run. Well, I agree. and a lot, You're right. A lot of that is the parties, it, and it's because – and people do it for – the connection to that power for personal gain. And it's almost you feel like, well, the less, the less mentally able they are, the, the more they seem to attach themselves to them because they feel like they can influence. They oh, can yeah. wield more influence, right? They're just likely to get whatever they want. Whereas if you've got someone that maybe hasn't gotten to that point, they're not as likely just to succumb to every wish, every request. But this this is certainly something to think about. Nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, remove the, the politics of it, whether or not you agree or disagree with anything she ever had to say. It is sad to see somebody waste away in a position when they could have spent their final years with friends and family. That's a good point as well. Uh, I, what motivates a person at that age to be, in her case, all the way across the country from her friends and family? Why would you want to spend it in the U.S. Senate and really not having all your full faculties to discharge your duty here? Man, 
It's just sad. But, once again, Dianne Feinstein, at the age of 90, senator from California, has passed away in, um, in the state of California. Now, the governor, Gavin Newsom, will appoint. You think his phone's ringing off the wall? It's been ringing off the wall, let's be honest. Uh, you know, I wouldn't appoint anybody that asked for it. <laughs> that's, that's the way I'd operate on that deal. I'd just be suspicious. On the program today, Drew Snyder, Executive Director of the Mississippi Division of Medicaid, in the next segment, Drew will give us a rundown, uh, an explanation, and some analysis on the governor's latest changes to the Medicaid program announced a week ago yesterday by the governor. Then Caleb Saylor's multimedia journalist, Super Top Mississippi News, at 11.20 today. Uh, I'll, I'll get to this real quick. You know, after the George Floyd incident, which just seems to be such a flashpoint in America's history, certainly over the last three years, corporate America just went all in for DEI and CRT and wokeness and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it started out, I think, with Major League moving the All-Star game. That seems to be the first big event, first big incident I can recall. May have been something even prior to that that got folks' attention. Well, you saw everybody in corporate America making all these pledges to hire more people of color, as they call it, promote, compensate, all that sort of stuff in the name of equity and in some way believing they're atoning for all the past indiscretions of the country. Okay, so the S&P 100 added more than 300,000 jobs. This was really in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. Get this. 6% of those 300,000 jobs were white people. 94% went to people of color. See, what bothers me about all this, it's not enough to just not engage in discrimination and racism. That's not enough. So-called colorblind. It's not enough. Not sufficient. Nope. you got to do with that Shakedown artist fraud, Ibram Kendi says, right? Well, you've seen the latest on him, right? He got a little scandal going on. His whole organization seems to be crumbling down around his ears. Good, because he's a dang shakedown artist fraud. He made a bunch of money on being a race baiter, is what he did. It's just a fact. He's the one who famously said, we've said it on the program before, we fight past racism with current racism, and we fight current racism with future racism. Meaning, whatever racism that he deems has occurred in the past, we're going to just reverse all that. So we've taken this reverse racism to a new level in this country with this latest bombshell report, in my view. This just hot off the press late last night. 94% of the 300,000 new jobs went to people of color. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. It's Drew Snyder with Medicaid up next. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
A little Zeppelin bumping us into this segment here, Rhino. Appreciate that. We are back in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us today. Our guest, Drew Snyder, Executive Director of the Mississippi Division of Medicaid. Always good to see you there, Drew. Good to be here, Gerard. All right, big announcement last week uh, from Governor Reeves uh, about some changes uh, in the Medicaid program, or I guess we could at this point say proposed changes because we await a final approval, right, by CMS. Can you break this down for us, Drew? I think there's two major components of it. What exactly does all this mean? Yeah, so basically under this plan, hospitals would be reimbursed up to the Medicare rate in the Medicaid fee-for-service delivery system, and then uh, would be reimbursed up to the average commercial rate in the Medicaid managed care system. So Medicare pays more than um, Medicaid, Mm -hmm. and commercial pays more than Medicare. Uh, there's a recent study uh, that shows that the average commercial rate for inpatient and outpatient hospital services in Mississippi is 193% of, of Medicare. So, hmm. you know, there, there's a pretty big uh, gap there. You hmm. know, all told, this proposal is uh, expected to generate uh, up to $690 million in net increases uh, to hospitals and Okay, so let's explain the net, and uh, by that I'll I'll give it a try and then let you correct me on it, but uh, one thing is there's this bucket of money called disproportionate share payments, comes from the federal government, and it is based on uh, sort of the patient care uh, reimbursement payer mixed, right, to a hospital if they have kind of an outsized amount of Medicare, Medicaid, uninsured, the federal government tries to plug that hole because generally that's reimbursed at below cost. That's right. Okay, so because we're getting more money under this proposal from Medicaid, would that reduce the disproportionate share? That's right. It would go down from about uh, two hundred and fifty-eight million to closer to to thirty million. Okay. So you've really got four pots uh, here that are getting impacted. Well, really, a new pool is for this uh, fee for service upper payment limit program that would be paying Medicare in the fee for service side. Um, an existing program that we call MHAP, Mississippi Hospital Access, um, the Mississippi Hospital Access Program um, that's pays close to 500 to between 550 and 600 million right now that would go up significantly that would go up you know 800 or 900 million dollars and then the you know the net decreases or the decreases would be you know on the dish side and then uh, there would be a negative impact from a um, provider tax standpoint because the hospitals will be uh, um, financing the non-federal share for this and I you, you probably under, have a pretty good understanding of how that works, but just you know, for the audience, uh, you know, certain classes of providers, including hospitals, are allowed by federal law to finance the non-federal part of the non, non-federal share of Medicaid. There's some conditions that are placed on that. So, for instance, it's uh, limited to 6% of net patient revenue, and you can't guarantee that everybody who's paying the tax is going to, to be a winner. Um, okay. But it yeah, in reality, most are, and yeah, they pay a little. It's not not probably like the taxes that you pay, Gerard. But this is a, a situation where you pay a little bit of tax and you get uh, a lot of benefit in return. And and let's let's uh, 
also explain, Drew, that when we say the non-federal share, we're really talking about the state's share. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, Medicaid's a joint federal-state program. It's financed primarily um, by federal dollars uh, in uh, yeah, in Mississippi. Um, match rate at that 78% number. It's going to drop to 77 in uh, uh, in January. But um, there are different match rates, but the primary one that's called the FMAP, the Federal Medical Assistance Percentage, is you know that that share that the federal government puts in. So yeah, this really uh, these these taxes are a way to generate more federal money without putting additional pressure on the uh, uh, the state budget, which is always the uh, tends to be the harder piece to to balance sure. and to make sure that we're you know, not r- running over. Sits around a billion dollars a year, just under a billion. Isn't that right, Drew? That's the right. State's portion. That's right. We're at nine hundred and uh, we were at nine hundred. Nine um, this year, uh, we have been uh, over a billion uh, in the past, and you know, our uh, our request we've we've stayed pretty level over the last few years. We are going to be asking for uh, some additional uh, money for state FY twenty five. Um, I I know legislative budget hearings are today. We we, we won't be presenting, but uh, I th- there will be some small increases, and some of that that some of it's driven a lot of it's driven by uh, change. In Medicare costs. Okay. So, yeah. Now, will the FMAP 77 be the terminal rate after we unwind the uh, ARPA, right? Well, I, no, not ARPA. It was the original bill passed under Trump, right, that boosted the FMAP. That's right. The yeah. the the, the, the FFCRA, the yeah. Families First, it gave a six point two percentage point increase uh, in the in the FMAP. So we were getting up to eighty four. But uh, when the omnibus was signed into law in December, they started a step down process. Right. So uh, we're you know as of October one, we're going to see the last quarter of an enhanced FMAP. So this weekend, it'll go from a 2.5 percentage point bump to a 1.5 percentage point bump, and then it'll be down to normal. Phasing it out. So commensurate with that, though, you're unwinding the roles of those who are no longer eligible, which, right, you weren't allowed to do. There was a kind of a moratorium on disenrollments for under that law passed in 2020. That's right. So basically, we froze. Uh, we we couldn't cut off coverage for any anyone uh, who was you know, potentially you know, ineligible for that three year period unless they died or moved out of state. So, you know, consequently, we saw uh, enrollment go up by about twenty six percent. So, I think at the end of March of twenty twenty, we were at seven hundred sixteen thousand, and by June thirtieth, uh, you know, the last month before we started those disenrollments, we were. Uh, up to 904,000. Unbelievable. We're still uh, about 140, uh, over 140,000 above where we were uh, prior to the pandemic. Mm. All right, so with respect to the governor's announcement, Drew, uh, there wasn't anything new announced by the federal government, no changes in regs, or it was something like just popped up, said, okay, this is available now, let's go leverage this? Yeah, I I think there's, uh, yeah, I, I the rules have not uh, – there aren't new rules that have triggered a change, but supplemental payments have become yeah, more popular, and there's kind of a growing body of work. If what you see that CMS will permit and uh, other states.
rates have really and, and it seems to um, this idea of average commercial rate and managed care seems to be where things are starting to kind of land as the ceiling for um, for Medicaid reimbursements uh, so in managed care so uh, it really is just for for us it's been learning more and getting connected to financial experts that have seen this in other states right. and seen what CMS uh, you know, uses uh, and will accept as uh, these estimates, these reasonable estimates estimates of an average commercial rate. Okay. And we have two, for the benefit of the audience, we have two delivery models, right? We have the MCO model, the fee-for-service model. And in the MCO model, we're essentially just paying a third party some set amount per enrollee covered. Is that right? That's right. We just send them a block of money per person. But under this program, though, Drew, these are direct payments over and above that to the providers, is that right? The managed care plans essentially act as a uh, conduit to make these payments to um, okay. to the providers. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, just like anything Always. in Medicaid is. That and and part of it, and, and one of the reasons, one of the appealing features, I think, of this program is, yeah, that it uh, it's tied to quality. And uh, the managed okay. care rules, one of the things that they have to do is that it's expected to advance a quality strategy. And I think, you know, this is uh, very. This is probably the most immediately impactful intervention that we can do to help hospitals. Um, but it's it's more than that. It's it's an effort to, uh, you know, not just help our members, um, but drive uh, care quality down the road and really build on some of the things that we've done over the last few years with hospitals on reducing readmissions and and potential uh, complications. So. As I understand it, Drew, the federal rules simply say, and this is what's a little confusing, I think, for the average person. It's not like the federal government says, here's here's a, a pot of money to go run Medicaid. Each state can can structure that program within constraints to some extent, the way they want. But And we'll talk about this on the other side of the break. But what I can tell is they expect actuarial soundness, right? That's the terminology they use, which could be interpreted a lot of different ways, depending on the actuarial analysis. That's right. With actu- with actuarial soundness, there's a floor, but there's really no ceiling. Okay, gotcha. Well, can you stay around? Got a Absolutely. few more questions. We got Drew Snyder, the executive director of the Mississippi Division of Medicaid, in the Element Well Studio. We'll be right back. With Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. In the Element Well Studio, we're pleased to have Drew Snyder, Executive Director of the Mississippi Division of Medicaid, in the Element Well Studio. So, Drew, you and I were talking offline. This is just complicated. Healthcare in general 
And I think it's because it's one of the only industries, maybe the only, where there's no standard price to the consumer, right? There's at least four. <laughs> you got private coverage, Medicaid, Medicare, could have TRICARE, and then you've got out-of-pocket. You could just, you know, pay out-of-pocket without coverage. All of that figures in, and all these all these providers uh, constantly track what they call their, their payer mix, right? Mm-hmm. Who's paying them? That's right. Uh, because it's different, as you indicated. And something else that even though the governor announced, and you just said it as well, that we're, we're, we're approaching commercial reimbursement rates, those are actually quite low in the state of Mississippi relative to other states, even our neighboring states of Louisiana and Alabama. And, and that's figuring into the financial health of hospitals as well. Yeah, and that's uh, the the commercial rates, or uh, that, that's it's something to keep an eye on because uh, you know on one hand we want um, providers to get adequately reimbursed, as we also don't want our premiums going up. Right. And I think I think one of the other hard things about uh, healthcare is um, there's not there's not a lot there's not a lot of willingness for trade offs. So um, you know some of the hard decisions that can you know come up there yeah there end up being being you know, winners and not winners, and you know, it's sometimes hard to pull the trigger when there are these you know, entrenched interests, and maybe most importantly, the, cons- in, you know, the consumer. Yeah. So, and let's be um, clear to the audience here as well that th- this move is not so-called Medicaid expansion, which is a term that I think almost everybody's familiar with, uh, which would really just entail adding a coverage group to the current Medicaid program, that coverage group being able-bodied adults. When the program was created back in the 60s, originally it was designed for the coverage groups that traditional Medicaid covers. Go through that for us. That's right. The the original design of the Medicaid program was for seniors in need, individuals with disabilities, uh, low-income pregnant women, so that's family incomes up to 199%, uh, and uh, low-income children uh, and certain caregivers so yeah you know, the 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 proposal that was announced last Thursday is focused on reimbursement increases for the 860,000 of really the most vulnerable population in the state that uh, uh, that Medicaid covers yeah and about half of those are children is that is that that's still right. about right that's right who We're, consume less services I mean they're they're healthier folks that's but, right. And and you've got a lot of children that that qualify in households where the parents do not. That's right. Uh, so yeah, our our cutoff for um, what we call the low income parent caretaker population is yeah in that between twenty and thirty um, percent of federal power. It actually changes. It, it it actually is a fixed amount. So you know, a family of four, five hundred eighty seven you know, dollars a month. But when you get into yeah. You know, instance um, pregnant women uh, new new mom, mom uh, pregnant mom that goes up to what family of two with a mom and a newborn thirty two hundred dollars a month okay so something I, I I'm curious about drew is all the states don't don't have the same 
um, income eligibility model. How much latitude does the state have in determining that? In our case, right, the different coverage groups, we even have different income eligibility numbers. Yeah, my understanding is some of this was grandfathered in, so you can uh, you can't go down. Now you could uh, you could go up. There, you know, some states that have lower uh, thresholds for low income par- caretakers that we do, and then there's some now our, our 199 percent uh number is yeah probably in the ballpark uh, there are s- some other ones that are uh, that are higher and that and that's the same uh same goes for the the chip program yeah. where it's up to 209 percent for those children from families with a little um with with higher incomes yeah so i, I have a report from the general accounting office the federal gao uh, that discusses improper payments uh, in the federal from the federal government, two hundred seventy billion dollars of improper payments from uh, the federal largesse last year. The biggest category, sadly, is Medicaid uh, nationwide, eighty billion dollars. And you know, Drew, I've always wondered: is is this because we have folks who are receiving Medicaid benefits that aren't quali- qualified? Do we have providers maybe that are sort of, um, I guess, uh, abusing the system as well? Combination of the two. Where, where's that eighty billion coming from? What's the, what's the root Look, cause there? It, it can be for for something as innocuous as documentation, okay. uh, and that can that that can drive a number up. But okay. it could be um, eligibility you know, errors, or you know, there's there are for children in Mississippi get continuous coverage for uh, twelve months, but there uh, are some reporting requirements for others when they go over those income limits. And yeah, there is uh, um, there's you know, certainly you know, abuse and uh, uh, and worse, uh, yeah, across the Medicaid program uh, nationwide, certainly more than yeah, uh, more than I, w- I would not go to say you know, prevalent or widespread, okay. but certainly more than uh, what we would like, which would be zero. How does the division of Medicaid in the state of Mississippi, Drew? How do you go about uh, determining? Uh, eligibility based on income is what's that process look like? I think a lot of folks in Mississippi are concerned that hey, I know people. I've heard this anecdotally. I know people who qualify for Medicaid benefits that really shouldn't be qualified. So we run uh, the applications will come in and there'll be there are um, different pieces of information that are uh, provided with that initial application, and then we'll run it through um, various databases to see if there's um, alignment, uh, and if there is, we can make a, a affirmative eligibility determination and yeah at least once uh every 12 months we uh are uh, while suspended during uh covid but we uh do the renewal of eligibility and yeah that starts with a we we will start with you know looking at those different data sources again there's a feed from the department of employment security and uh different uh a number of different data sources where we can try to confirm that uh, income. And if we can't determine that they're eligible from that information or determine that they continue to be eligible, we send this pre-populated renewal form to them where they can can return to us uh, and update information as needed. So I've seen some reports with the disenrollment that's happening across the country that a lot of people believe that they're, a lot of beneficiaries believe they are actually eligible, uh, but there's some, there's 
just documentation requirements, right? That that are that they just fall short of. Yeah, you've probably heard a lot about that. There's been a, a lot, you know, in in certain segments of the media and from certain you know act advocacy organizations about you know, procedural disenrollments yeah, yeah. and now that could be that could be people that don't know uh, that know they're not eligible if you have a 22 year old that was you know kept coverage in a child category for three years because of uh, because of the continuous enrollment condition they may not be turning their form back in and no they're not eligible or you know there are other cases like that but there are also situations where somebody that they you know may not get to it or yeah, do they not have the um, are and so yeah, we do have good. Um, they can return. They've got ninety to twenty, one hundred twenty days to return that information. Yeah, after the and have their coverage reinstated uh, to the point that they lost coverage. So there is uh, uh, there are some opportunities if people don't uh, turn that paperwork in right away that uh, yeah they they can get back on without having to submit that application, but. For from an administrative standpoint, we would much rather you know the information get returned, and uh, um, you know so we can go ahead and you know, make those make those decisions. I got you. All right. So if if someone's enrolled and they qualified based on their income, but then their income rises such that they would no longer be qualified, how does that work? How do you guys check that? Uh, well, with children, it's just it's part of the, the uh, it's part of the twelve month re- renewal cycle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's a twelve month renewal cycle. That's right. Okay. That's so right. it's not it's not like once you're in, it's permanent, and we rely on you to tell us if your income changed or something that would disenroll you or, or disqualify you. That's right. Say. So the caregiver group yeah, um, that would also apply to pregnant women. That there's uh, twelve months of continuous coverage there, and then another category like the low what we call that low income parent caretaker group you know they've got some reporting responsibilities but if they go over income they can qualify for something called transitional medical assistance and they can stay on for a little longer and that group is that like 45 percent of the federal poverty level or something around that um, it's pretty low it, right it's, it's pretty low it's uh, it's been in the 20s and because it's a flat number it goes down it okay. goes down every year i got you and that's what causes the so-called donut hole between that group and those who would be eligible for coverage in the Obamacare marketplaces, the ACA marketplaces, That's which for require the, for, for 100% the, yeah, up. For the caregivers, and yeah. then for um, non-caregivers, there's there's not Nothing. a Medicaid. Right. That's right. Gotcha. Drew, always appreciate you, uh, sir. Thanks for coming in and explaining all this. Uh, take care. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Gerard. Yeah. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is Middays. 
We're in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees. And you need it more than ever, Rhino, because the old kangaroo is hopping around over there on the Dow. It's been up as much as 200 points now. It's down 76. It's just crazy, these swings. They drive me crazy, by the way, watching them all day. Uh, by the way, we're going to be at the 27th Annual Cruise in the Coast next Wednesday. Looking forward to that. It's America's best car show, as voted by USA Today, and you don't want to miss it. That's Middays with Gerard Gibbard from the Biloxi Town Green on Wednesday. I see they spelled my name wrong on the live reads. <laughs> Oh, gosh. So, looking forward to that. Um, the Now the Dow's down 81 points. The NASDAQ up 64. It's been up as much as 140. And so the news today is that consumer sentiment, not as bad as was expected. The other news um, is the that inflation has moderated just a tad. The personal consumption expense metric, that's the one... That um, uh, that the Fed likes to likes to analyze, I guess, the most and considers in their rate changing adjustment decisions. I really wish the investment community would stop focusing so dang much on the Fed and and worry more about the fundamentals of I don't know revenue, profit, profit per share, earnings per share. Uh, that's where we ought to go and not be so dang just uh, fixated on the Fed. But that's where we are. And it's because they have so much power with the the interest rate lever. Um, The 10-year has pulled back a little bit. I'm concerned about mortgage rates sitting at a 16-year high now on a report I saw this morning sitting at 7.3 percent and change, and many expect we're going to cross the 8 percent mark in the next couple of weeks. I'm thinking we're looking at 10 percent in the first quarter, especially given the Fed's at least indication that they expect to raise rates again, the benchmark rate again, before the end of the year at least once, and that they're going to stay there for a while. And this is this is a uh, Again, the the cat and dog fight between the Fed and the goofy federal government who's just determined to shut down the oil and gas industry. And as long as we uh, suppress oil and gas production in this country, energy production, fossil fuels that we got to have to live, uh, that are necessary for a thriving economy, inflation ain't going anywhere. It's just simple as that. Uh, I say again, I totally disagree with Nikki Haley's proposal to put a pause on the federal fuel tax. And the reason is because that just means people would likely consume more fuel, which would drive the price up. We already got oil crossing the $93 a barrel mark. And uh, that is that's concerning at a minimum. Uh, Robert Reich, as Rush used to say, our old friend. Oh my gosh, that he just, guy. <laughs> he, 
He is obsessed with CEO pay. He just can't he can't leave it alone. And of course, he's he's big time in support, as you know, of the union, uh, the United Autos Wor- Worker Unions, which expanded their strike this morning. You saw that. I think now we're looking at some twenty five thousand workers being on strike. I think uh, this morning the latest move uh, is some GM plants that are going to join the fray here. Well, well the, the bigger it gets, the less money they have to give them their weekly stipend, so the less time they'll be on strike. That's right. So explain that. The unions have some money tucked away to oh, pay yeah. workers while they're on strike, right? Yeah, they get something like $500, $600 a week, which uh, that's not a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. But that's what they, they give every union member when they are on strike as a way to be like, hey, it'll be okay. We just got to wait this out. So Reich says the explosion in CEO pay relative to the pay of average workers over the past few decades isn't because CEOs have become so much more valuable than before. They've just gained the system to line their pockets. He says it would take 400 years for an auto worker to make what their CEO does in one year. So I'm going to share some math with you folks on the other side of the break with respect to CEO pay. And uh, doesn't he kind of make his own argument somewhat discredited when he calls them average workers? He does. Think about it. And I'm not saying that they're not providing a valuable service there working in the factories for these car companies. But here's what I'll tell you. These CEOs that run these companies, they ain't average workers. There are fewer people that can do that job that can hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Guarantee you. We're stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. Coming right back, and I'll give you those numbers. Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? And now, now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of Middays. We're coming at you live from the Element Well studio on this. Friday, y'all. So, <laughs> how timely. Just on the break there, I receive, a, uh, in my email, an article about Ibram Kendi and Boston University investigating the Kendi Center after... Ignoring their request for information. It sounds to me like this is just good old fashioned steal money. I don't know how else to put it. Is that right? I mean, he's got a bunch of grant money that's supposed to be doing something with it, right? Anti racist center. Yeah, he's getting it from both sides. He's getting it from the people that gave him money, and he's getting it from people that he was paying that he was offering a, what do they call it, a hazardous work environment, I think was the term they used. <laughs> Like they went a step above what you normally have to deal with in HR. <laughs> oh gosh, he raised fifty-five million bucks for the Kennedy Center, including ten million from Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter. Ten million bucks from old Jack. 
Oh, but he's not biased in any way, Jack, right? Gives $10 million to the biggest... I can't call him what I really want to, but he's, he's a, a race pimp. He, he's a race pimp. Yeah, I have a different word in mind, but I won't say it. But it's true. He he he's a race pimp for a living. That's just disgusting. Here's the question. So even Boston University is saying, oh, we're not sure we're getting anything for this deal. He he also laid off 19 people. He had 46 laid off 19. In this group, what what are forty six people doing? Explain to me what they're doing. And he writes this. They sit around and talk about how they're aggrieved. That's exactly. And then they try to figure out how many buzzwords they can put into a paper to express how much they're aggrieved, so that they can then publish it, so that the world knows they're aggrieved. (laughs) I completely agree. But he writes this long letter to these employees whom he dismissed. And, oh, I mean, it just... He's like two steps away from sitting on a couch crying to a camera and apologizing to somebody out there in the ether. That's exactly what it is. This I read this letter. I'm saying, oh, my gosh, I got my little bitty violin here for him, you know. Oh, and it's just... In the title of the letter, Statement on Center for Anti-Racist Research Layoffs. What kind of research do you have to do for this? This is just common sense, isn't it? Well, when the demand outpaces the supply, you got to dig for it. That's, and that, sadly, is exactly what happens. It's kind of like, show me the person, I'll find the crime sort of deal. It's similar in that respect, is it not? Oh, yeah. So here's the question. Now... Corporate America, our government, Goofy Candy, all these private individuals have invested untold billions of dollars in all this stuff, all this DEI stuff. You think it's moved the needle one iota? And, and what I mean by that is that if, you're, if your goal right, is to eliminate discrimination and racism, which I think is a state of mind and heart, I think I don't think that anyone can necessarily describe one, uh, identify a person as a racist, because I think those are feelings held in their heart and mind. Now, could they commit acts of racism? Well, sure, but they don't ever seem to be able to produce any of that. That just well, what are you talking about exactly? And then they'll give you all these statistics. No, it's all assumptions and mind reading. It's exactly right. So my question is, all these workshops, all these corporate training, all these consultants, all these sprawling DEI departments stood up, commissioned. Uh, uh, Every college, except the HBCUs, has a DEI. Has it changed anything? I would argue that makes people more racist. The people who are racist, I think they get more racist. They get outraged at this. I just think it's a big old waste of time and money. And, you know, I told you I've had people troll me on Twitter when I, I made the statement a couple of weeks ago about, you know, this can happen naturally. I mean, diversity in organizations just happens naturally. It happens because the management and, and folks making decisions see that, hey, this is best for, for the organization. It just happens naturally. 
If you tell me that, hey, diverse organizations perform better than non-diverse, well then, even those of us in the private sector that are in business to seek and produce a profit, okay, well then we're going to be diverse if, if that's true. I still say, I don't care about all that. I care about the best qualified. I care about merit. I care about value, performance. That's what I care about. I think I think everybody just innately does, but this unless you're a loser, yeah. And unfortunately, many of these people, like Kendi, are. You almost feel like, what happened to this guy along the line? I mean, it's isn't it kind of hard to be the champion for this anti-race effort when you're running an organization that got fifty-five million in grants? Who else has got some private? High-tech billionaire says, here's $10 million to go fight racism. That's what Jack Dorsey did. Who else avails themselves of that? Nobody that I know of. So, I just don't, I don't think it's helping, I guess is the point I'm making. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't feel like that it's achieving its objectives. And that's not to say that racism doesn't exist. Of course it exists. I completely acknowledge that. I'm not shying away from that reality. I'm just questioning the the approach to combating it. That's all. Um, I, I saw that, uh, you know, one idea is you think about the rising price of college tuition. That's something that gets a lot of chatter, a lot of discussion. Well, why don't we get rid of all these diversity officers that are all making a fortune, honestly? We've shared that a lot. So, get this. The worst state in the country was in terms of the college environment, the university environment. Talking about the ratio here of DEI personnel relative to faculty members. The state of Virginia, if you look at the combined colleges, workforce, and you look at their their faculty members and then compare that to the number of people they have in the DEI. They have 6.5 DEI personnel for every 100 faculty members. The University of Virginia has 94 diversity officers on the payroll. 94! What do they do? George Mason University, also in Virginia, 8 diversity personnel for every 100 teachers. Eight. So I'm looking at Oregon, the University of Oregon, Oregon State University. uh, They have 4.6. California has 4.5. Michigan, 4.3. Unbelievable. This is from the Heritage Org, by the way. Yeah, I agree. Just get rid of all that stuff and bring the cost of tuition down. Is the average student getting any kind of value from that? I guess they get a safe space, right? Gotta have a safe space. <laughs> Gotta have a safe space. You can't, you can't function without Bring that. me my bubbles and my coloring book. I cannot handle reality. <laughs> All right, so back to Robert Reich I was talking about before we went to break at the top of the hour. It would take 400 years for an auto worker to make what their CEO does in one year. If you took the CEO of GM, took her pay, she, by the way, makes... $29 million a year. Now, I haven't looked at it, but I will bet you that of that $29 million, I bet a third of that's cash and the other two-thirds of stock grants, stock options. 29 which they can't go unload because if they do, then the stock would tank. 
and they'd get fired. The board would fire them because those board usually are stockholders. But that's a couple added layers of understanding that you, you just won't get from liberals. Well, uh, you know what? Then they shouldn't be able to vote. <laughs> they shouldn't be able to vote, and they certainly shouldn't hold office because most of them holding office don't understand this. You think Joe Biden has a clue of how that works? Well, the CEO of GM, $29 million, that puts the ratio at 362 to 1. Now, there are 173,000, pardon me, 167,000, 167,000 employees at General Motors. So if you took that $30 million, I think I did the math right here, check me out. That means just take the CEO out of the equation. Just fire the CEO, don't need him. And I've seen that suggested on some of Reich's Post. There are people out there who say we don't need a CEO. Just let the workers run the company. Okay, it would be 173 bucks per worker, according to my math. Here's 173 for you. 170 a year, a year by the way, 173 dollars. It's it's a poor math argument, and math does matter. Hashtag math matters. It just matters. All math matters. All math matters. That's right. <laughs> I love that. We got to remember that one. That could be the tagline for the show. All math matters. We're stepping aside for a break. It's Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist with Super Top Mississippi News next. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, it's all. Talent in that group, wasn't there? The traveling Wilburys. <laughs> we are back in the Element Well studio, and we welcome to the program Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Top Mississippi News. I'm really glad the Traveling Wilburys didn't bury uh, Into the Line, because that's a fantastic song. And there is a lot of talent in that band, though. If you Ooh. haven't heard of the Traveling Wilburys, uh, to our listening audience, look up who all was in that band. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, all right. Uh, tell us what's happening. All right. So we're in election season right now, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up probably one of the most important elections in uh, state history. The city of Starkville has elected its first pet mayor. Uh, we have Buster Camp, who's a French Bulldog mix, who is now the inaugural pet mayor of the city. He'll serve as an ambassador, but he's not alone. He's got a whole cabinet with him. He's got a chief of Paul Lease, a fur chief, like a fire chief, and then a board of Paldermen. So we've got a whole pet <laughs> elected system in the city of Starkville. And that's just a little lighthearted uh, cool. story. Well, in real big news, though, national news, it looks like we're approaching possibly, probably a government shutdown. Uh, we had Congressman Michael Guest on a couple of days ago saying it's pretty much inevitable right now. you got on the Senate side, the Senate has introduced a kind of a bipartisan measure to fund federal operations. However, a lot of Republicans in the House and some Republicans in the Senate were like, no, we're not going to support this measure because we're not going to add $6 billion to Ukraine when we need to fund our own federal government. And there's a couple other 
um, amendments within the measure, too, that some of the Republicans in the Senate and House uh, don't see eye to eye on with their Democratic counterparts. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has already come out and said, yeah, we're not going to even entertain any of this. On the House side, they're trying to fund defense, agriculture, homeland security, and foreign operations. And uh, Congressman Michael Guest said they hope to have at least half of those uh, operations, like bills passed, to fund those by the end of the weekend. But now they're just going to have to find a way. What what Michael Guest was saying was that they're going to have to find a way to introduce a stopgap measure. Both sides to agree, look, let's just temporary temporarily fund the government for 30 days while we can further debate and hash out, iron out an actual spending bill. Yeah, through a continuing resolution. Yes. Yep. And so we'll see how that goes, but he, he said he'd be shocked if there wasn't a government shutdown. Gotcha. It, it looks like they're not going to, it looks like they won't pass anything major, like a long-term solution by uh, the Sunday midnight deadline. Yep. But also, we've got some uh, things going on in our hospitals in Mississippi. Uh, Greenwood LaFleur Hospital has just been approved uh, $3 million from the uh, Board of Aldermen, hmm. and, uh, or the Board of Directors, rather. And so that'll, that will actually help them fund operations uh, through the end of this year into the beginning of next year. And under the governor's proposed plan that was introduced last week, Greenwood LaFleur Hospital will also expected to get about $10 million, too. So that hospital is at the forefront of our hospital crisis in Mississippi, and it's good to see that they will be able to sustain operations through the remainder of the year as lawmakers look for a long-term solution to our hospital crisis. But speaking of the governor's proposal, you know, you kind of had mixed reviews from hospitals. You know, he mentioned, he rep, he um excuse me, introduced the proposal last week. It's about $700 million um, in Medicaid reimbursements that hospitals can draw down from. And some hospitals, like St. Dominic's here in Jackson and Neshoba General in Philadelphia, have said, this is great. This will help us. We need this. But if you go to supertalk.fm, you'll see where some other hospitals, particularly rural ones, are like, no, or the executives in the hospitals are saying, no, this may, may not be... What, what it's advertised as, and we're not going to end up winners hmm. in this. And so we'll, we'll see how the hospital situation further unfolds. You know, we've got the election coming up in November. Then the legislative session will be here sooner than later. And I fully expect lawmakers to address this issue head on this coming session because they're going to have to because, I mean, we are seeing that there are certain hospitals in the state that are looking towards their, um, like, complete closing date. I think it's a question of exactly what can the government do, you know, yeah, and how much should absolutely. the government get involved in this. But uh, I, I think just because it is affecting the entire state, I think the legislature is going to at least discuss it. Absolutely. I mean, they're going to have to at least discuss it. But in, in good news in Mississippi, on the education front, uh, the Mississippi Department of Education came out with two different reports this week, uh, one of them saying that 91% of Mississippi school districts earned a C rating or higher this year, and we saw that uh, Ocean Springs was the highest-rated school district. But not far away from Ocean Springs and Moss Point, uh, they had their highest rating ever hmm. in Mississippi. You know, They were usually an F-rated school. Yep. And they've got it up. And so I think it was their first ever A rating in uh, their school district's history, which is good to see that you have schools overperforming, overachieving in Mississippi, where we've had struggles in education here lately. And then the MDE also uh, saw a drop in chronic absenteeism. 
uh, the past school year, the 2022-2023 school year, which is good. And chronic absenteeism is defined if you miss 10% or 18 to 20 days of a school year. And it dropped 4% from um, 28% to 23.9%. And so you're seeing more kids back in the classroom, more kids not missing school for any reasons. And and then you're seeing the uh, positive results of that with the test scores, with schools getting higher ratings. Yeah. Well, that's all good news. Uh all right, so you talked a little bit about this uh, this Medicaid situation. Yep. We just had Drew Snyder in here talking about that. Still has to be approved yes. by the federal yes. government by the CMS. So, uh, but all indications would I think point to approval. Yes, absolutely. I don't I don't see why it wouldn't get approved by CMS. Well, it's nothing new. It's been done in yes. other states. Drew, Drew talked about that mm-hmm. um, as well. Uh, you know, something that I've been talking about a lot on the program here that's starting to get a little attention is, is PERS, the PERS mm-hmm. program. So um, I, I don't know what uh, – I don't have any specific recommendations on how to, to cure its financial uh, challenges, but this is something else I think the legislature is really going to take up. Absolutely. They're going to have to look into it. And I know you had Mayor Robin Tannehill on earlier in the week to discuss it. And I know you talked to Mayor Toby Barker of Hattiesburg. I know they've been kind of the champions of like, hey, we've got to do something about PERS right now. The legislature is going to absolutely have to address this, this upcoming legislative session. Yeah, and, and we're hearing, of course, uh, a lot of concerns mm-hmm. from mayors, such yes. as uh, Mayor Tannehill of Oxford, mm-hmm. because uh, – they have to fund that yeah. uh, out, out of their revenue, and mm-hmm. their revenue primarily is sales tax diversions, yes. at least at the city level. And so it's unlike the state agencies, the state will just appropriate more money to those agencies mm-hmm. to cover this. So this is going to be something they're going to be talking about. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, we've talked about this before off record. It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a mess. It is. In the hand. It is. Uh, so uh, something else that's going on uh, is we just found out about Southern Miss baseball, uh, pardon me, basketball coach. Joy Lee McNellis, the women's basketball coach at Southern Miss, her uh, lung cancer has returned. She's been battling lung cancer on and off since 2017, but she's going to persevere. She's going to be getting treatments at Forest General Hospital there in Hattiesburg, but she said she will coach. The show goes on, and she's also helping other people who have been diagnosed with cancer in the local community, too. I've met uh, Coach McNellis a couple of times, and one of the kindest human beings on earth, salt-of-the-earth human being, and um, I hate that she's going through this. My prayers are with her and with the Southern Miss women's basketball team, but if there's anyone that can fight this and overcome this, it's her. She's delightful. I had a chance of uh, having, uh, having dinner with her. Um, uh, about three months ago, four months ago, back mm-hmm. in May, she was a featured speaker at an IT event. Wow. And I was also uh, honored to be a speaker, and the speakers had dinner the night before, and um, she's impressive. Absolutely. And we, we wish her the absolute 100% full recovery. She's such a good mentor mm-hmm. to those young ladies that she coaches. You could just tell. From Absolutely. just talking to her, she's just a coach's coach, and she's a good coach. Too. I mean, yeah, she's, she's taken really the Golden good. Eagles to the Elite Eight. She's been to something the they've inst- never done before. No, right? never before. And she's one of the most historic coaches in Mississippi. Not not just in terms of women's coaches, but like all around, and is the winningest women's basketball coach in Southern Miss history. Has been there for twenty seasons, and just remarkable role model. All of her former players just praise her endlessly. 
and she's had a remarkable impact on that community. And to be there that long, too, and to stay there and to stay firm and, you know, Women's basketball typically gets overshadowed by football, by baseball, even by men's basketball. But for her to continue to have that role and that impact on the community is just a testament to who she is, not only as a coach, but as a person. And so, like I said, if there's anyone that can fight this fight and overcome it, it's her. Yeah, I agree. Back to this uh, Mississippi School District uh, rating, Mm -hmm. were there any other surprises you saw on the list, Caleb, as far as uh, improvements or declines, or was it pretty much in line? Um, Tunica, Knoxabee County, and Holmes Counties had some big leaps. And so a lot of those, like uh, Knoxabee County and Holmes Counties, are more impoverished areas of the state. So it's good to see students overachieving in those, you know, impoverished areas. But before we go, I got some uh, football. We got three big games here in the state. Southern Miss, uh, all the teams are looking to bounce back. Southern Miss takes on Texas State at 6 p.m. tomorrow in The Rock. Uh, Ole Miss, big game, LSU, uh, 5 p.m. I know you and I will both be there. Yep. You can tune into supertalk.fm for my coverage of that game. And then Mississippi State takes on Alabama at 8 p.m. tomorrow. Can they get a win over Nick Saban? We'll see. But I think the Ole Miss-LSU game is the, the big feature game of that. Ole Miss coming off of the Alabama loss, looking to bounce back. Can Lane get a signature win in his tenure at Ole Miss? I'm hoping so, and I'm hoping the Bulldogs prevail over Alabama going to Starkville. <laughs> Absolutely. Appreciate it, Caleb. Thanks Thank for you, coming Jordan. in. We're Thank- coming right back in the Element Well studio. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. back, everyone. Sticks bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We are once again in the Element Wealth Studio today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear another interview with blues historian and author Wesley Smith. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. And go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. Let's see. We're going to get uh, to the ceasefire text line here, uh, Rhino. Uh, ben from Madison says, uh, still can't think of any negatives if we instituted legislative term limits. You know, the, the thing I've pointed out about um, legislative term limit, limits, the, the, the risk of legislative term limits, and you may disagree, and that's fine, is that when an elected leader doesn't want to leave in particular, and they know they're not going to be running for re-election, they tend to go scorched earth on you. It's just everything and anything I want, scratch all the backs and, and fill all the pockets and feather all the nest of all my cronies while I'm getting out of here, because I don't care. I'm not running for re-election, and 
I'm pretty much untouchable, honestly. And look no further than that $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that uh, the Congress passed last December to keep the government up and running. $1.7 trillion, largest in the nation's history. And it was absolutely jam-packed with pork. Pork. $600 million of pork. And the top pork recipients were outgoing Republicans. Of the top ten, six were Republicans. Of the top five, four were Republicans, all of whom were not running for re-election. That's always been my fear. Ben, is that to some extent they believe they're not any longer accountable to the voters. I can do whatever I want. I'm out of here. Don't want to vote for me? Don't like what I'm doing? Don't care. Gone. Now, I'm not saying everybody's like that, and I would like to think they're not. I'm just saying that I think there's a propensity to at least, while I'm getting out of here, let me make sure I get everything I can before I go for me and my pals. That, that arrogant Shelby, Senator Shelby, Richard Shelby from Alabama, I'll never forget that interview they had with him. They asked him about it. He was the top pork getter. Oh, I don't really care. I'm going home and just run errands for my wife. Remember that? That disgusted me. You're a sitting U.S. senator, sir. What do you mean you don't care? I mean, just, yeah, criticize me all day long for getting these buildings named after me and roads for his buddies and all that kind of crap. So that's where I see. Um, ben uh, also sent me a note yesterday about uh, what do we do about PERS, and I, and I didn't get to it, and he said, uh, and I asked him, remind me about it tomorrow so we'll touch on it, and I, and I did uh, a minute ago. But, you know, I've been doing some research into PERS, I mean, like down at the, the detailed uh, math level, if you will, financial level. And there's lots of information that's available. I've also talked to uh, the State Department of Finance and Administration. I'm, I'm looking for specifically some data pertaining to the payroll burden. Now, so for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, that concept, you pay a person a, a salary or a, a wage, whatever that may be. But then in addition to that, an employer has expenses associated with maintaining, employing that person over and above their salary, their wages, their compensation. And that would include, let's look at the private sector. It's, it's Social Security. Uh, it's Medicare. There's an employer portion of that. 7.65%, I think, is the current rate of the two combined. And then typically employers are going to provide their employees uh, some sort of group health insurance. If you've got more than 50 employees, you got to, by law. Well, the employers are going to pick up a part of that, a part of the premiums, a share of the premiums. Well, that's in addition to their, their standard pay. And then you've got state unemployment taxes, federal unemployment taxes, and then you've got workers' compensation. That's just at a minimum. You also may have a 401k plan at a typical employer, and the employer is going to, to provide some contribution to that. I mean, there could be others. It could be um, life insurance is a benefit they may provide, and disability insurance, 
you know, in addition to the health, they may enhance that with vision and dental insurance. There could be a cafeteria plan. You've got administrative fees, maybe even an employer contribution into that. So you could have a wide range of additional expenses over and above. Well, in the state government, you got the uh, the big um, additional expense of the public employee's retirement system because the employer presently all public sector employers in the state of Mississippi, state agencies, municipalities, counties, school districts, and the like, they're all going to pay for every dollar of payroll, they're going to pay 17.4 cents into the PERS fund on behalf of that employee to fund their PERS retirement benefits. Well, you guys know, we've talked about it, that's going up by five points. It's going to be phased in now. So, so that's been such an unpopular move. It's it's received so much, I guess, a response that, of concern, especially from non-state agency public sector employers who have to figure out a way to work that into their budget. That we went from the the PERS board of trustees saying we're putting this five percent increase in place October one, which would be in a couple of days. They said, okay, we'll push it back to July. And now they've come back a couple of weeks ago and said, okay, we're going to phase it in starting next year over three years, 2%, 2%, 1%. So the point I'm trying to make here is that when you hear about, when you think about hiring someone into the public sector, and let's just say we're going to pay them $50,000 a year, that really doesn't tell the entire story of the cost, the direct employee cost. Because it's $50,000 a year, plus PERS, plus Social Security, plus Medicare, plus insurance, plus unemployment, plus cafeteria plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See where I'm going with that. So what the data that I'm working on is, what is our, it's called the burden rate. What is our burden rate? What, what does it cost us per dollar of compensation to, to cover these additional expenses? What does it cost the taxpayers? Just the, just the, talking about just the employer share, not the employee share, who pay into PERS, pay into Social Security, pay into Medicare, pay part of the health care premiums, et cetera. I'm talking about just the employer share. So the big thing we got in the state of Mississippi that's a little unique, uh, ben, is this so-called 13th checks, the cost of living raise, and it's unique in that it's not really tied to the cost of living. It's not, it's not tied to the, to the CPI, the personal consumption expense factor at all. That's the way Social Security works. When the cost of living goes up as measured by the CPI, Social Security benefits go up. I think 8% this year, as a matter of fact, as a result of Joe Biden's inflation. But uh, it, it purrs. It uh, doesn't work that way. It's it's um, 3%, I think, for all years of employment, uh, pardon me, of retirement, uh, up to the age of 60. If you retired, say, at 55, you were eligible under PERS. Those years with, where you were retired, those five years, it's 3% of um, your service benefit for each of those years. But after 60, it then becomes compounded, compounded. Well, I've done some work on that just to compare that that figure, that amount, those amounts, the, the cost of living adjustment, so-called 13th check, to what if we did tie it to the CPI, 
to the uh, Consumer Price Index. I'm uh, going to include that in the article that I'm writing. But that, so that would be one thing to do is, is uh, wouldn't suggest that for anybody currently receiving benefits. My, my belief is that you got to leave those people alone. I, I don't think you can touch that. And even people that are close to retiring or at least have a certain number of service years in, don't think you can change anything on them. Maybe people that haven't been in the system that long, perhaps it does make sense to, uh, to the extent that it is legal to look at some adjustments. Maybe for new people coming into the state um, of Mississippi or coming into the public sector as employees, uh, many of whom are young, honestly, I don't think they're as concerned about PERS benefits 25 years down the road as they are current rate of pay, especially in an inflationary environment. Maybe, it's, maybe it makes sense to shift more to, to pay just standard wages and away from um, uh, these these um, ancillary benefits such as PERS. That's that's another example. And then there's the investment uh, target rate as well. I think we did a, made a mistake by reducing that from seven and a half to seven. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, everyone. It is a midday, Super Talk Mississippi. So I'm going to tell you who the most powerful person in America is, Rhino. Who's that? Taylor Swift. <laughs> she has announced that she will be attending, at least it's rumored, the attending a Sunday's game to see the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, the star Travis Kelsey, all kinds of rumors surrounding that. I don't uh, think they're rumors anymore at this point. Okay. I would buy that. And they're playing the uh, New York Jets. So the ticket prices have spiked by 400%. You see that? Just oh, because yeah. Taylor said she's going. Man, oh, man. That's just a statement on the current state of society, isn't it? 428 to 627 because the pop star is attending the football game. That is just crazy. On the ceasefire text line, Mr. G, look at this scenario. The Dems are in trouble. Biden obviously cannot run again. Kamala is not an option. Kamala replaces Feinstein. She finishes term and gets reelected. She's happy. Gavin replaces uh, Harris. Biden bows out, resigns before he gets impeached for treason. Newsom becomes president, names a new VP, and runs on the ticket next year. Well, that's a hard one to follow there. I don't think any of that's actually legal. However, though, because there's a process for replacing the vice president, and it don't include just saying, hey, Gavin, come on in here and take Kamala's place. So that, unfortunately, that's not, uh, I don't see that working out. Benny needs to get out. He's done nothing for the people he represents. We were talking about the, um, the longevity of members of Congress with the passing of Dianne Feinstein, who's been in the upper chamber representing California since, uh, what we say, 92. Yep. Benny Thompson been there representing Mississippi's 3rd Congressional District. Uh, of course, that's changed a little bit a couple of times. He's been there so long. Uh, 93 
is how long Congressman Thompson has been in Washington. If Congressman, if Congress doesn't pass the spending bill, it shuts down. Will that also close the border? No, it'd make it worse. And that's what they want. I mean, it's so porous as it is now. What's insane is uh, how uh, you saw an exchange yesterday, I think, in the Congress. Was it was it uh, Senator Hawley, I think, was talking to Ariana Presley back and forth, and it was, do you think the border's secure? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely secure. And she said that. Uh, but there was an impassioned speech by Senator Katie Britt. I may have sent you something on that. We'll try that in the next hour. That really just put it all in perspective. And uh, she talked about the horrific uh, incidents occurring at the border. So you've probably seen also Elon Musk as a private citizen. He carried himself down there, transported himself to witness it. He not only said the whole thing is an outrage, it's a shame, he said AOC is dumb. (laughs) Did he not? He called her dumb. I feel like that was more of a test for his systems at Twitter, because if I'm not mistaken, the night before he went to the the border, he was going to try to live stream himself playing a video game, oh, so that they could have a whole bunch of people all on one channel to test whether or not they could handle that kind of traffic, and then they didn't quite get it done in time for him to be able to do it when most people in America would be awake, so... The next day, he shows up at the border live streaming it. It just feels like he had an opportunity to go to the border, so he's like, well, I can kill two birds with one stone. I can go to the border, and I can test my my app. Something he did share, honestly, that was a bit shocking to me. I don't know if you saw this, but he was talking about seeing uh, members of the cartel who are, of course, uh, engaged in human trafficking, and homicide and murder. If they don't get what they they say they're they're due, they just murder you. They just kill you, right? To to set the set the tone and send the message. Oh, don't, yeah. don't try to cross us up. So apparently they tattoo themselves with a teardrop representing each person they killed. It's a badge of honor. They tattoo themselves. This is what Musk said I mean, this morning. That's nothing really new in criminal organizations. Well, here's what maybe is different, however, though. These people are getting asylum in this country. Asylum? That's supposed to be because you're fleeing an oppressive government. Hell, you are the government. The cartels run Mexico, Venezuela. And that's why, you know why so many people are coming here from Venezuela? Because communism has taken root. How about that? So think about that. We got people coming up here from Venezuela by the train loads to escape the ravages of communism, to get into this country. We got people in Washington, Democrats, who want to transform this country to a communist bastion, a wasteland. That is just, the the irony is just unthinkable, in my view. But it's the truth. We're going to get to this video on the other side of the break of uh, Senator Katie Britt. Stay with us. we got a lot more to talk about in the afternoon portion of middays. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming right back.
Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is with you now on this. Friday, y'all. So, oh gosh, on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395 is the number if you wish to join the conversation. What you are describing, fighting past racism with current racism, all that is going to accomplish is to guarantee racism continues to exist, Mose. So, Mose, let me clarify. First, you're right. Secondly, remember... What Ibram Kendi is saying is, in terms of fighting past racism with current and current with future, what he's suggesting is inflict racism on white people. That's the racism he's referring to that fights the past racism on a current basis and current racism on a future basis. He's condoning racism against white people. And that conflicts Rhino with a lot of these race nuts that say there's no such thing as racist against white people. Racism against white people, right? Yeah, the circular <laughs> logic of leftists. <laughs> okay, so uh, while I'm on the break, I get uh, an, an update in my email uh, from one of the sources that I, I follow about all the crazy stuff that's happening on the college campuses. Okay, so the um, there is a a, uh, an event schedule, the, uh, let's see if I can get it right, the Anthropology, the American Anthropological Association and the Canadian Anthropology Society, they scheduled an event that is entitled, Let's Talk About Sex, Baby, Why Biological Sex Remains a Necessary Analytic Category in Anthropology. Of course, we got somebody on our text line that says this kind of stuff doesn't happen. It's outliers, right? Doesn't happen. Okay, so let me explain. These folks are... They're advocating for... These anthropologists are advocating for um, the the identification of human remains based on uh, their biological sex. You can tell, right, from bone structures and so forth, for the most part, with oh, yeah. with 100% accuracy. This differences a, in the skull, differences in the pelvis. Yeah, you can tell. Okay. Male, female. I, I know. I took a little uh, trivia here. I took as an elective, believe it or not, a 300-level biology course called human reproduction. And the reason I took it is because I had to have six hours of biology, and I took basic biology for three hours, and I wanted to get it out of the way, and basic biology two, whatever it was called, wasn't available, and I wanted to do it. So I said, oh, what the heck, I'm going to take that. Well, I'm the only non-pre-med student in the class. And this was all about the biological complexities of human reproduction. It really was. This had nothing to do with all the political crap we're talking about, none of the gender ideology. This was about these are males and these are females. You probably can't teach it today, sadly. Well, one of the things that, that kind of stayed with me, I, I mean, learned... What do they teach? The wrist bones connected to the <laughs> arm bone. One of the things that, that we learned that 
I never really thought about is if you extend, I'm doing it right now, if you extend your arm, okay, the male's arm, the bone there, pokes out, and the female's is indented. It's concave versus convex, I guess, right? So it's just how we're built. And some of it, I think he said, maybe has to do with estrogen and uh, so that sort of stuff, maybe. But bottom line is, that's kind of part of the bone structure that you can use to tell. Was this a male or female? And in this group, by the way, it was an all-female panel that is advocating for, no, we got to keep including this in our science, in our, in our, uh, our domain here, our discipline. And so, unfortunately, however... The American Anthropological Association sent the panelists a letter informing them that they, uh, they, certain, they, they could not allow them to conduct this panel discussion. And they go on to say, while biological sex remains a necessary analytic category in anthropology, we have reached a decision to remove the session from this big American Anthropolo Anthropological Association conference. And it was based on extensive consultation. <laughs> you got to love that crap, don't you? Let me just pawn it off on somebody else here. And that was reached in the spirit of respect for our values, the safety and dignity of our members. I just, I hate that. I, why does that grind? What was the line me? about consultation? Because it's really just a churched-up way of saying we, we talk to each other via email That's for a couple days. Extensive consultation. There you go, yeah. Oh, here we go. This, I this. sent an email to them. They sent me one back. I waited three hours, sent them one back. We went back and forth for six hours, and that was the consultation. <laughs> Pay me my money. It says, uh, this is the key statement in this, in this letter here. The reason the session deserved further scrutiny was that the ideas were advanced in such a way as to cause harm to members represented by the trans and LGBTQI of the anthropological community as well as the community at large. So if, It's if, harmful to point out that they're living in la-la land and that they're lying to themselves down to their bones. <laughs> it's just crazy. You can't make it up. So we can't say, yeah, those bones belong to a male. Those bones belong to a female. We might harm someone. That is unbelievable. No, harming someone is when a bullet goes through your head. That's harming someone. And it's okay to rip a baby out of a womb. No, that's fine. We're cool with that. But words are violence. <laughs> Which is ironic because silence is violence. Unbelievable. I, I just, I, every time I think I've seen it all, it's something else. It's a whole my beer moment on a daily basis. It's totally in incredible. Oh, gosh. Wow. Uh, Matt says, VM Squared says, no continuing resolution fixed the problem. You know, Matt, I don't like the continuing resolution process as well. I, I favor what's called regular order, which is this past 12 appropriation bills, which that's, that's regular order. And, and we're talking about, once again, the discretionary side of spending portion of spending, not the mandatory. It's crazy to think that 70% of government spending is not appropriated. The Congress has zero to do with it. Only the 30%. So I do support a continuing resolution right now, right now, not normally, simply to allow time 
and make it short term, 30 days. Allow time to negotiate and deliberate 12 bills under regular order to fund the discretionary portion of government. They've known this has been coming for a long time. They should have already done that. Now, pox on them for not doing it. But right now, I do think that's the best deal. But I agree. It's just kicking the can down the road. And I point out once again, if they appropriated zero dollars to this discretionary portion of government, hang with me here, zero, we would still run, as of the, the, uh, uh, the deficit we're going to produce in 2023, which is now sitting, as I thought, as I told you a few months ago, it's coming in at $2 trillion. We've got two days left. Three days in the month. Two trillion dollars. Okay, get rid of all discretionary spending. We still run a two hundred billion dollar deficit. That's no military, no Department of Education, no Department of Justice, no FBI. Go down the list. No EPA. Every single agency eliminated, torpedoed, plus the military. No more military. Zero. Shut every base down. Fire every soldier, sailor, airman, marine. Gone. We still can't pay our bills. That's how bad it is. That's how silly it's gotten. That's how delinquent they have been in fulfilling their responsibility. We still can't. Get rid of all of it. 100%. We still can't make ends meet. That's just sick. That's just terrible. And you can't run a private business that way. It's called bankruptcy. Essentially is what it is. So when you think about your tax money that you send to the federal government, all it covers is the mandatory portion of government. And it falls short by $200 billion of funding the discretionary part, by funding that part, pardon me, because if you, if you don't fund the discretionary, you're still $200 billion in the hole, which is insane. Scott Pearl says, I have zero respect or, for, or confidence in U.S. Rep. Guess since he voted for the partisan January 6th committee, boo. So he didn't, by the way, Scott and Pearl. Just so you'll know, there's two different aspects of that, and I've explained that countless times. What you saw on television, he voted against. What he voted for did not get approved. What he voted for was a reasonable investigation into the events that day by not Congress, by law enforcement and others on the ground, just to understand more about what happened. By the way, that did not get support in the Congress, and it did not pass. He did not support what you saw on television, not one iota. So just so you'll know. Uh, let's see. As a police officer has worked on grants, I know it takes about 50k to pay an officer 35k salary. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, let's see. We're we're taking a break right here in the Element Well Studio. We're coming right back. A lot more to talk about. Interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 Welcome back, everyone. It's middays from the Element Well Studio. 
in a minute, I'm going to get right up to share a couple of video uh, videos, uh, some sound for you. One of them I think you'll find entertaining. It concerns pronouns, just to lighten up the day a bit. The other is uh, really an impassionate uh, set of remarks delivered by Senator Katie Britt of neighboring Alabama. But I wanted to pass on this bit of news to you. I'm not sure if folks around the state know that Hines County, that would be the county here in central Mississippi where the state government is located and uh, all of its uh, apparatus, as well as, of course, the city of Jackson, the capital city of Jackson. Well, the county's IT systems experienced a significant cyber attack back on September the 7th. Systems still down. The latest word is, we think we'll be up in a few days. That's all we've gotten. Okay. Yesterday, actually it was a couple of days ago, the county approved $600,000 to pay third parties to help with this situation, to resolve this cyber attack and restore systems. Uh, $335,000 to Netlink Voice and $265,000 to Digital Asset Redemption. So, for a settlement fee. Um, I, I don't know, honestly, at this point. I'd say it's 50-50. They get their systems restored. They got attacked with ransomware. And uh, the thing that this should be the most disturbing to all of us about this, something I've, I've uh, called attention to on the program a few times, and here it is, which is I know a lot of folks have serious concerns about voting machines and the accuracy of, of uh, votes being tallied and properly accounted for by electronic devices used for voting. I get it. I understand that. But my larger concern has always been the vulnerability of all of these IT systems run by counties in this country, which oversee voter rolls, manage voter rolls, which are used in performing, conducting elections. Well, if we had an election today, couldn't vote in Hines County. No availability of the systems. You can't do county business, land records, title searches, things like that, fees, so forth. Out of business right now. Since the 7th, the, almost the entire month, three-quarters of the month, down. This is crazy. But it ain't just Hines County. Don't just say, well, that's Hines County. They don't know what they're doing. That's wrong. All 82 counties are vulnerable. All 82, all 3,100 in this country, because they all have aging systems, and they're easy targets for the very smart cyber criminals. The vast majority do not have adequate, proper cyber defenses, threat detection systems, and so forth, and security event systems. And um, systems that manage a security breach like this, there, there's a whole science in that. Uh, it's called. It's been a while since I've been around it, Rhino, but it's called SEIM, Security Event Something Management, Incident Management. I think is what it stands for. Is that right? Security Event Incident Management. That's a whole. That's a whole genre, a whole discipline. And most of these these counties don't have SEIM plans. Most of them don't have proper cyber defenses. They're all vulnerable. 
and my concern has always been the bad guys. Uh, by bad guys, I mean Russia, China, our most, our most ardent foreign foes. They really want to cripple this country? Don't need nuclear bombs. How about you send out ransomware attacks, some sort of malicious attacks, digital attacks, on all these county systems so that we can't have elections? Forget about election integrity. How about no elections? Don't think it's possible? Think again. It absolutely is. And we're experiencing right here in Mississippi, in central Mississippi, at Hines County. All right, so we got some video to play here for you. We've, uh, we've talked a lot about all this crazy gender ideology stuff. What's scary to me, Rhino, in, in this, this little short tape we're about to clip, we're about to play for you, is that these people live among us. The, the, and this is this is it, what you say all the time. This is craving attention. Nothing more or less. I'm sorry you can't see it, but you can at least hear it and get a taste for this craziness. Here we go. What are your pronouns? Uh, either she, her, or they, them. What does they, them mean? Uh, pretty much it's when I'm feeling more of not gender confined, like pretty much no gender. I choose to go by they, them. So you don't feel like a gender sometimes? Pretty much. Like, I'm still questioning what my gender is. Like, So how does that process work? Um, pretty much just I'm playing around with different gender identities and different pronouns until I figure out exactly which one. And so some days you feel like a what and some days you feel like a what? Some days I feel she, her. Other days, like today, I'm feeling more no gender. Wow. <laughs> what are your pronouns? Uh, I go by any pronouns. I'm gender fluid. Really? Is that what that definition is? Gender fluid? Sort of. It's like you feel like one gender one day, maybe another the next, or like neither or any of them. So if I refer to you as a ver, a ter, a zer, a zim, a her, a him, a they, a them, it doesn't matter? Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what are your pronouns? Uh, they, them. They, them? Mm-hmm. So does that mean you are both a guy and a girl, or could you give me some, I don't know what that uh, means? I would say neither, but... Either way, I don't really care. So literally, I would say, uh, instead of, hey man, how are you doing? I'd say, hey them? I mean, I don't care if you say, hey man, because that's more of a, that's become more of a neutral term to me. Same with dude and guy. But like, if you were to refer to me, you wouldn't say he, you would say they. So if I was to say, uh, if I was to refer to you, I'd say they're wearing a balloon hat, not he's wearing a balloon hat. Yeah. <laughs> I see. What are your pronouns? He, they. He, they. And they means they. So could you give me like a little bit of a like description of like, because I don't understand what that means. There's he, she, and there's they. I'm they. And so like you're them? Yep. And so like are you multiple people? Yep. Really? Yes. <laughs> could you explain that to me? No. Uh, too much work. But uh, I am a legion. I am legion. I am many. I am the one who is many. Hi, y'all. Happy Friday. He's the... Oh, you don't want to answer any more questions? No, y'all have a real one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What about the way those people looked in the dress? <laughs> well, I'm sure if you really close your eyes and think about the kind of people that live their life like this, you could probably get pretty close. Although I wouldn't have pegged the balloon hat unless he had said it. <laughs> this is crazy, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. <laughs> from the anthropologists who were worried about identifying bones with their biological gender. Can't do that? Oh, my gosh. 
You know, so I, I think there's a lot of stuff that Republicans could certainly focus on in the upcoming election. But one thing that we're hearing a lot from, from Biden, at least, is uh, it's all about the, the, the radical extremism, right? That's what we hear over and over again. Extreme, my God. What, I mean, what, are they, what does he mean by that? And unfortunately, that garbage actually does resonate. Um, yeah, far among right. the dumbest people on the planet. But they vote. That's the problem, though, Ryan. Oh, you see, they, they vote. And they don't have any shame, so that's why I can call them dumb. If they get their feelings hurt, then maybe they could experience some shame for once in their life. <laughs> shame for being so dang dumb. Oh, well. So again, you got you got Biden even calling out Trump supporters, just like Hillary did. The basket of deplorables. That's just dumb. I thought he was supposed to be Mister Uniter, Mister Empathy, and just. Just recently in speech, where he's urging bipartisanship, he calls Trump supporters as extremists. You know, what's extreme, in my view, is teaching first graders that gender is something adults made up. That's extreme. That putting tampons in middle school boys' bathrooms, that's extreme, in, in my view. Uh, and, uh, letting the borders be just wide open so that we essentially are ceding our sovereignty, that's extreme. $7 a, ga- a gallon gas in California because of terrible public economic policy, federal economic fiscal policy, that's extreme. I, why does it... Why don't the Republicans dwell on that more? I, I think they should. I mean, there's a there's a lot more. This whole embrace embracing of the whole transgender movement and putting that above anything else, that's extreme. Like your physical characteristics account for more than your your value proposition, your contributions to the betterment of society. Uh, extreme is allowing abortion up until the moment of delivery at the end of gestation. That's extreme, in my view. Nominating someone, we're coming right back. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. It's 38 special. I'm going to send to this segment here. So I had the S, I said S-E-I-M, it's S-I-E-M. I apologize for that. That's Security Information and Event Management. So I knew event was the E in there, just couldn't remember. It's been about five or six years since I dealt with that. I had a practice in my company that uh, provided those services, consulting with other companies, and also uh, to, to produce and develop their own 
uh, SIEM <clears throat> processes and systems, and also we, we had a practice that provided such services when uh, customers were attacked with uh, uh, malicious digital events there. So you don't want to see anybody go through that. And, and look, it's private sector, public sector. Everybody's subject to it. Probably saw MGM, big casinos out in Las Vegas, experienced significant ransomware attacks, right, a couple of weeks ago. Unbelievable. Which there was some more odd breaking news out of Las Vegas earlier today. What's that? A person connected to the killing of Tupac Shakur in 1996 has been arrested by Las Vegas police. That's weird. Hmm. That's very weird. We'll see what comes out of that. Yeah, that pronoun stuff is crazy, isn't it? It's just crazy. So think about how twisted up we are when you consider that there's some some organizations in this country that uh, will inflict some sort of punishment on people for misgendering or mispronouncing them. I know you've seen this on TikTok. It's laden with people who take to TikTok to express their grievance about how, I just went to the store and they misgendered me. You see, There's millions of them. It's incredible. Like that's the worst thing in your life? Are you kidding me? Maybe it's because you look like a guy, even though you want to be referred to as a girl. Maybe yeah, if you're sporting why. a 5 o'clock shadow and an Adam's apple, you could put on the lipstick and a dress all you want to. You still look like a dude to 99.99999% of the population. <laughs> it's just your eyes. So, speaking of which, have you seen the, uh, the shaving company? They make shaving products. Braun. Isn't that their name? I think so. I, I believe so. All right, so they've got an ad. I don't know if you folks have seen this. They've got an ad that features a female who has transitioned, ostensibly, to a male, and it's shaving, shirtless, you're shaking your head. You see it? Shirtless. Yeah. And, and in the ad, with this female who is shirtless, shaving with their chin up, they got the shaver, the brawn electric shaver. They're, you know, trying to feature the tool there. You can clearly see scars underneath their breast where they've been removed. That's who they're using to promote shaving products. I ain't talking about shaving legs or underarms like girls do and women do. I'm talking about shaving one's neck. You see that? Is that not insane? This is, didn't they learn something from Bud Light? Evidently not. Of all the people to get to promote your shaving products, your facial shaving products, you get a girl who said their breasts removed. I don't get it. That's what I mean when I say they just want to poke you in the eye with this crap all the time. Now, how many could there possibly be? There can't be that many. We could probably fit them in this room. Unbelievable. Just is. Oh, gosh. I got to calm down. Stuff, stuff like that. It's just that 
It's it's the three hundred thousand employees that the for, uh, Standard Poor's, I think it was one hundred hired uh, since the the um, George Floyd deal, of which ninety four percent were black. It's like I'm going to show you here. Now look, here's let's be honest. I don't want to be like they are. If they were the best and most qualified for the job, you did the right thing. But if they weren't, and you only did it to make a statement and to check your woke insurance box, then I have a problem with it. Now, you're a private company. You do whatever the hell you want. I don't want the government intervening in that. I just think it's dumb. It's a bit disturbing. Stop. I'm trying to eat lunch on the ceasefire tax line. Uh, from the 601 on the ceasefire text line, it, it makes me think of something. They said my mamma had a stash. <laughs> it's like if, if they really want to be empowering and change hearts and minds, that's a, that's a whole demographic that would probably be more populous than the number of people that identify as trans, the number of women that use razors on their face. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but... You're try- the, see, here's the problem. The idea here is to sell stuff. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to sell to transgender people? That, that ain't, you can't make a living. You can't survive off that. Just selling your products. It's like Bud Light. You're just trying to grow your market share to the transgender people? Well, sure, you want their money, too. You see, I'm weird like that. I like green. I like money. I don't care who buys it. So anything I do from a marketing and advertising and promotion perspective, it's to get the most bang for the buck. I don't think you're doing that. Bud Light already proved it to us, right? They already proved it to us. Now we got the shaving company. Somebody said they think uh, Harry's the shaving company does too, shaving products company. Unbelievable. Uh, Also, somebody said that they appreciated the, the interview, and I appreciate the feedback on that with um, Lance. Gerard, you always do a great job in the interviews. I can tell you do a lot of research and know a lot about the issue beforehand. Probably didn't spell your name right. Appreciate that. Great job. That was just in uh, relation to our our visit with Drew. And I appreciate Drew coming on. Uh, I'll say it again. That may be as far as the agency heads. No disrespect to anybody that runs these agencies in the state of Mississippi. Medicaid, that may be the most difficult one of all. It's deep, it's wide, it's gigantic when you think about the federal and state money that flows into it. It's, uh, it's always under the microscope, as it should be, because a lot of money flows through there. It's the second biggest budget item in, uh, in the state's general fund budget. Education, number one, consumes about 50, 52 percent of the total General fund spending, Medicaid's right behind it, has been forever, number two. And if you look at the 50 states, you'll find the same thing, same sort of model, education, Medicaid, in there. Uh, somebody also said they have, on the C Spire text line, secured my pre-sale tickets yesterday. I think we're talking about Journey. Yep, we're all ready to go down there to see them on February the 9th at the Mississippi Coast Coliseum. Looking forward to the big concert, Johnny West Point says, what you bet Newsom will appoint a black transgender to replace um, Senator Dianne Feinstein. I just don't know what he's going to do. But, you know, the whole world's watching. No doubt about it. You know, another kind of sad thing in my view is that, and we have the same situation here in Mississippi, that 
these uh, these senators end up being appointed. And of course, that gives them a huge leg up, you know, when they have to then run to retain their seat in a statewide election, being so up getting appointed. But that's just through attrition, and in the case of Senator Feinstein, it's because she's 90, and she probably wasn't going to survive her full term here. On the ceasefire tax line, folks say it's greed and power, greed and power. And you know, I, I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll share this, I should say I'll tell you this, but I'll share this with you, is that the, the money, honestly, that you make as a member of Congress, 174-4, you're not getting rich off that. I mean, it's good pay, I'm not saying that. And there's some who certainly historically have leveraged their positions, not so much while they're in Congress, but it's when they get out, they're highly sought after for speaking engagements and endorsements and lobbyist positions. That's where they make their fortune. But no doubt, they paved the way to that by serving in Congress. But it's the spoils. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> you just have access to lots of stuff. Um, let's just call them benefits and amenities just because of your of your rank there, you know, your status, that the average person doesn't. I think that is, and, and that it shouldn't be that way, and that has expanded dramatically as time has progressed, but I do think that's as much of a draw to stay and stay and stay as anything is. Because you know once you're not there, you're not top of the list for those kinds of benefits, those kinds of favors, shall we say. But we're coming right back with the final segment of Middays from the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. Guys, I would have never seen the border firsthand if this woman didn't know that I needed to see it immediately upon entering the United States Senate. I followed up with a trip with John Cornyn because they care. These people down there, Senator Blackburn would talk to them. She knew them. We walked through and we got to hear women tell us their story. And their stories are brutalizing. And to Senator Cruz's point, if you're not telling it, that's on you. Because when a woman sits there and she tells you not just about being raped, but how many times a day she's raped. When she tells you about having to lay in that bed while they come in and out and in and out. It's disgusting, and it's despicable. Folks, you look at the number of people that have died at the border because Joe Biden has made it more and more enticing to come here. Make no mistake, this is a result of failed policies. We could fix this. We can't throw money at this and fix it. We have to actually change the policies. I looked in the eyes of CBP agents who said we're exhausted. We're not only having to be paper pushers, we're also trying to do what we do, what we took an oath of office to do, and that is protect this border. But when they tell you about finding small children 
who have drowned in that river or pulling a lifeless body of a woman who is pregnant with twins. It changes the way you think about what's happening. Drug cartels, guys, they have their tentacles all over this country. We need you to start telling that story. To Senator Cruz's point, they will tell you exactly how much they paid to get here. Then they'll tell you where they're going, what their job's gonna be, and how much more they owe. Got it? And guess what? Just the other day in Alabama, a gentleman told me, if you will come back here with me in this neighborhood right behind you, you will see migrants who are here illegally and they will tell you about the drug cartels coming around every other week to collect. Guys, that's not the American dream. That's an American nightmare. I think that pretty much uh, very eloquently summarizes the problem. I just don't understand why Democrats just shut their eyes to this. It's, it's all okay. That's, they seem to, by, look, by not acting, by not admitting there's a problem, that's condoning it. That's supporting it. That's aiding and abetting this behavior. And uh, shame on them, honestly, for that. It's, it's beyond selfish. Instead of Robert Wright attacking corporate CEOs who are trying to maximize the profitability of their organizations, in fact, that's how they get graded and paid, no. He ought to be taking a look of this brutality and, the, honestly, the abdication of duty on the part of the federal government. That's what's radical. So I applaud that Senator Katie Britt from Alabama that was speaking there. I applaud her for that. That that was as good an analysis of the situation as I've heard. And though Elon Musk is a private citizen, has little power to do anything about this problem, the fact that he's there and calling attention to it is something, right? It's it's generating buzz. I would not have known about this teardrop tattoo had he not pointed it out I mean that bothered me I just can't I can't comprehend how a human being could take pride in snuffing out the life of another human being such that they they mark it on their body with a tattoo like a trophy I killed somebody moral decay that's the problem and it's being facilitated by Joe Biden and the Democrats on the ceasefire text line, by the way, I was talking about the brawn ad featuring the transgender with the scars underneath the breast. It's called micro-advertising micro on the, the ceasefire text line. Companies make multiple online ads for different demographics and use social media algorithms to target those peculiar groups. I'm well aware of that. I'm one of them. I, I'll admit that when I'm working through my social media, I sometimes get things that interest me. And I'll click on them, and so they're collecting my information. And, you know, um, I think I've said before, sometimes I use the buy, na- buy now, pay later services that are embedded in the payment part of uh, some merchants. I do that because I get it interest-free. I'll use your money for a couple of months if you'll let me. Well, what I give up for that, what I give in exchange for that, I should say, is information about what I'm buying here. And they use that to target me with more. That's just that's just the way the whole digital advertising world works. I get that. My point is, how many people are like this person in the ad? 
That's my point. Are you getting your money's worth? I'd say that's not why they're doing it. That's the point I'm trying to make. They're not doing this to go capture the huge transgender shaving market, being the women who have transitioned to males and are shaving. That can't be a big enough market to justify investing in advertising and promotion. And that's the point I'm making. It's not. It's virtue signaling garbage. Look at us. I'm telling you that's what it is. All about that. Not so they'll sell more of that. That's Bud Light didn't do what they did with, uh, with the, uh, Dylan Mulvaney to sell more Bud Light. I don't buy that. That was virtue signaling. We appreciate you joining us. We're out of here today. Back with you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. And God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.